Matthew 24, verses, verses 1 through 14. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the building of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left there one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of the coming of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will, will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. Oh. I mean, there's some crazy stuff in there, isn't there? May, I, I got to tell you, I, I love doing Matthew and I love going through a book because it doesn't kind of give you the chance to say, ah, we're just going to skip that part. Because um, I, I mean, I read this and like, I mean, if you're listening, why would anyone follow Jesus? Right? I mean, I hate to be the one to bring it up um, or, or to even admit this, but like one of the very first things I thought this week as I began to study this text is why am I following this guy? I mean, if this is where he's, he's taking us, if this is where he's leading his disciples, why, why do I want to go there? I mean, I honestly, I, I wonder that periodically anyway, right? I mean, we all do, don't we? I mean, Jesus is not the easiest person to follow. Uh, and, and the badge Christian isn't always the easiest one to wear, right? Uh, you know, maybe you, you hear something in, in the media or something at school about Christians and you, you can't help but think, do I really want to be associated with them? Or, or maybe you just feel the, the temptation of, of pluralism around us. Man, come on, aren't, aren't all religions basically the same anyway? Why don't, we, why don't we just quit worrying about it, right? And get along. And getting... Following Jesus is getting harder and harder and harder. I mean, can't we just sort of tame him down a bit? Make him a bit more palatable, a little more live and let live, more, more 21st century. And then to hear these words in Matthew, if you're listening, um, that we just heard read, if, I mean, to, to listen, I mean, not only are they confusing, I mean, in fact, I, I got home from work on Monday and we had dinner together as a family and I, we were just talking about our day and I, and I said, uh, Man, this, this chapter in Matthew, like it is, this is a hard one to figure out. And later, later on that night, um, my son, David, uh, hollered down from his bed, Dad, you're right. I read it. It is weird. <laughs> it's like, like, yeah, yeah, it is. Welcome to my world. Because um, it, it's weird. It's confusing. It's hard to understand, except, except where it's really obvious and where it's obvious is that the real Jesus leads us to division. 
The real Jesus leads us to suffering. So why would we follow him? I mean, I don't know if you caught this as, as we listen. We'll, we'll read it again and a little bit more as well. But the, I mean, all this over and over about like, don't be led astray, don't be deceived, all these, these false Christs, these, these fake Jesuses, right? What, what is that all about? Well, if you know that Jesus, the real Jesus leads to division and to suffering, of course we're tempted to follow somebody else. Some other path to, to salvation, some other form of Messiah. Of course, Jesus warns us because he knows who's, who wants to follow the real Jesus. Well, we're going to attempt to answer that question this morning. And really, if you think about it, that's the question we try to answer every week as a church, isn't it? We gather together to remind us of why, why do we keep going back to him? And Matthew 24 gives us a fairly unique vantage point to, to wrestle with this, this question. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to, to turn there as we, we're going to cover quite a, quite a large section here. Um, and, and Matthew 24 uh, it begins what is known as the Olivet Discourse, which basically just means like the teaching of Jesus on the Mount of Olives. Um, and, and Matthew does this. We've seen this throughout as we've studied. Like he'll, he'll give a bunch of stories and then a long section of Jesus' teaching. And then a bunch of stories and a long section of Jesus' teaching. And this, this is the last of those long sections of his teaching. It's Jesus' really his final teachings to his disciples. It goes on for two chapters here. Uh, we're going to spend four weeks covering it. Uh, and it's, it's largely, not entirely, but largely about the end of the world. It'll be fun, right? Something to look forward to. Um, and, and if you're listening, or even just as you see it there in your Bibles, it begins as, as Jesus and the disciples leave the temple. They've been there the last uh, several weeks for us as we've looked at these stories. I mean, short time for them as they've had these arguments and you know, problems with the Pharisees and Sadducees, like the religious leaders and all of that. And finally, they, they leave the temple. And as they go, it's so interesting. Matthew tells us the disciples, they walk out and like, man, this temple though. Like we, we get the, like the religious leaders, like they've had all these problems with them. But this temple is amazing. Like this, this picture of, of God's glory and power and what he's doing through his people there. And, and Jesus, in response to this, pulls a complete Debbie Downer. He's like, yeah, it's going to be demolished in just a few years. Wah, 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 right? Um, and it was. Like four decades later, AD 70, the Romans would completely demolish this, this symbol of all that is sacred in Judaism. It'd be gone. And, and it's almost like in this moment, the disciples are basically speechless, it seems like as they make then the 30-minute hike or so up to the Mount of Olives from the temple. And so, they, they, I mean, they just can't get their minds around what Jesus has just said. The temple is going to be destroyed. Like, I mean, it's just, it, it, they have no category for it. So they, they silently make the, the hike up to the Mount of Olives. Now they're overlooking the Temple Mount, seeing all of Jerusalem laid out before them, and, and they ask their questions. Two of them, two questions that, that lead to this long section of Jesus' teaching. And the questions are this. You can see them there. When is the temple going to be destroyed? Like, they, they just got to know, right? If this is going to happen, tell us when, Jesus. And second, what will be the signs of the end of the world? What? Like, these are the two questions that come out of this. Like, and they ask them right together. And what makes it even harder is Jesus answers them together. 
And sometimes he's talking about the, the temple and the events of AD 70, way, way long ago in our past. And at other points, he's talking about the end that is yet to come. In Jesus, he goes back and forth between the two. He doesn't tell us when he's talking about which, right? So it makes it really, really difficult to understand. Some of what he says already happened. Some of it is yet to come. Some of it we're living in the midst of even, even now. Now, generally speaking, the passage that we're looking at today, he's talking mostly, not, ex- not entirely, but mostly about the temple, AD 70. Next week, it's going to be much more about the, the future events uh, yet to come. Again, not entirely, it blurs over back and forth, but that's kind of a, a good rule of thumb as we look at these. And again, for us, like these two questions, like what are the disciples thinking? How do they do these together? But for them, they weren't like separate events. Like, in their, in their mindset, the destruction of the temple meant the end was coming, right? It was, it was they saw it as the beginning, as sort of event number one, uh, and potentially a really, really, really long line of, of future events that would finally culminate with Jesus coming back. And so for them, they don't, they don't know it's going to take, you know, 2,000 years so far, counting, right? Um, they, they don't know, but they see them at, together as, as things that are, are going, to, going to happen, that it's going to lead to Jesus' return eventually. So for example then, if you were to ask me, Nathan, that's my name, by the way. Um, if you were to ask, Nathan, uh, are we living, do you think we're living in the end times? Is, is the time of Jesus' return, is it close? Well, the answer is yes, absolutely. Like, of course it is. The temple's been destroyed, Right? The sequence of, of events has, has begun, and Jesus, I mean, the time of his return is closer than it's ever been, right? And it keeps getting closer with each second that passes, that we're getting closer and closer to that moment. Now, the trouble is, right, when we start to try to pinpoint it, try to, you know, get our, our charts all figured out and all that, because, you know, Christians have been saying this for, for 2,000 years. So we, we don't know when he's coming back, we just know that it's sooner than it was, and it gets sooner at every, at every, at every turn. And so even, even as we look at these, these passages over these next few weeks, we kind of need to make a pact together um, that we're not going to use them to try to figure out the end of the world. That's, that's, not, that's not why they're there. Um, keep your charts and your timetables at home. That's, that's not what's going on, right? Sometimes we, we get hung up on these details. We want to figure out who the Antichrist is and, you know, the seven horns of the whatever that's coming on some cloud or, I mean, that's not what we're doing because that's, that's not what Jesus is trying to do. What Jesus is trying to do is warn us on how to live best as we wait. And his, his instructions for the disciples way back in AD 30 through past the temple in AD 70, all the way now to today are still the same because we're still, we're still waiting and the end is drawing near. And the warning over and over in this first section is don't be fooled. Don't be led astray. Don't don't be deceived. Keep following the real Jesus. Don't be tempted away by, you know, other other ideas, other paths of of salvation, other, other sort of concepts that sort of draw us or even just imitations of the real Christ. Don't be led astray. Keep following the real Jesus, which is particularly hard when you, when you quickly see where this real Jesus is leading us, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's no doubt these things go, go hand in hand. Of course we want to be led astray. Of course we want to be deceived. The first thing that we see here is that the real Jesus leads to division. 
If you're following the real Jesus, no one is more decisive. Like, and if you don't believe that, like just as a test, like tomorrow, you know, sitting in staff meeting before it begins, just kind of throw out there. So what do y'all think about Jesus, right? And just feel like all of the energy and all of the oxygen. I mean, like, could you ask a more uncomfortable question? You could be like, I got these spots on, you know, it's like, I mean, there's nothing you could ask. Like, it makes us deeply uncomfortable. No one is, is more divisive than Jesus. Nobody is neutral about this guy. And, and Jesus knows that, right? He's, he's not a fool. He knows he's about to die for this. So verse four, as Jesus talks, he says, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. Right? Like I'm the Messiah. I'm the, I'm the, way, the way out, the way through. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, for there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Like, just expect it, Jesus says. Okay, don't freak out. There's going to be wars, famines, earthquakes. Like, he's not saying those things are okay. I mean, sadly, though, those are just, those are normal in a world as broken as ours. It's like, don't, don't panic, don't be deceived. And keep in mind, it's only the beginning. So then verse, verse nine, he continues. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, which is a big word for like terrible, horrible, awful suffering. And put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Expect to be hated, Jesus says. That, that people will, will betray you and betray others. And, and that many, many will be led astray. Right? Probably some of us. Many will wander, be be. be wooed in by this, this alternative, right? These, these lesser Christs. And even this, this phrase, I mean, so as lawlessness increases, like as moral boundaries erode, Jesus says, love will decrease. It'll grow cold. Love needs a moral framework to flourish. And this happened to this, happens to the disciples, doesn't it? I mean, anyway, like... In some ways, like in moments, as Judas betrays them, they, they feel it. E even, even then with, with him and not just there, in the early years as the church spread, they were hated by the Romans and the Jews. Like there's just not a safe place for the Christians in the early centuries. Violent and ugly. I mean, this, this new Jesus movement, right? I mean, it seems doomed before it even gets started, doesn't it? Jesus says, don't be deceived. Oh, and you can see why it's so easy, right? I mean, even today, because we, like, we just, we want to be liked. I don't want to offend anybody or make anybody uncomfortable. We want to fit in, live our lives. And Jesus says, that's just not going to work. It's impossible. Don't be deceived. And we feel it, don't we, in a, in a pluralistic world. Um, the highest moral ideal anymore 
is tolerance, right? Like, just, just don't hurt anybody. Like, co- coexist, do no harm. And, and so accordingly with that, right, there, there can be no right religion or wrong religion. And so we'll, we will minim- do anything to minimize division. But Jesus says, if you think you can blend in and be a Christian, like, you're deceived. You're just wrong, he says. And, and while it, it may feel loving to avoid division and to just, you know, make everything sort of vanilla together, it makes our love grow cold. It's not love to tolerate another human. Like, who wants that? Can you, can you imagine somebody like, I tolerate you. Oh, gosh, really? I tolerate you too, right? Because what's, what's amazing, I mean, this, this should blow us away, is that while Jesus says that we are going to divide, that he is going to divide, like, like nothing else, our world, that we will be hated and suffering will come with it. He also says that we, we're to love those who hate us. We're to, we're to pray for our enemies. We're, we're to sacrifice ourselves on behalf of others, even for those who seek to destroy us, who want nothing but to harm us. I mean, tolerance is for wimps, right? Followers of Jesus love, even when it costs us all that we have. I mean, tolerance, I mean, tolerance is sort of like the, the mannequin version of love, Right? It's the appearance of love, but with no real substance. It looks like love, but it has no life in it. It's not what Jesus calls us to. Now, of course, some Christians are hated just because they're mean, right? It's not what we're talking about, arrogant or hypocritical, and we know way too many stories of that. That's not, that is not what Jesus is talking, that's not what we're talking about, right? But if everyone likes you all the time, like in your goal, you just want to blend in, right? And, and you value the same thing as all, all of your non-Christian neighbors and coworkers. Your life, your life my life looks the same as, as everybody else. If it's just fitting in, this is, there's a chance you're not following the real Jesus. Because the real Jesus leads us to division. That there, there will be conflict and discomfort because he is the one I follow above all other allegiances. And it's not going to be easy. And all the more as the end draws near. Mm. All right. That was fun. Second. Gets worse, by the way. Um, I mean, don't let, blame me. Just like read, read Matthew 24. It gets worse, right? The real Jesus leads to suffering. Wait a second. I thought, I thought Jesus was supposed to make my life easier. Fix my problems, right? Nathan, why, uh, why would I follow him? Are you, are you saying, are you actually saying that if I follow Jesus, my life is supposed to get harder? Yeah, that's actually, you're following it great. Um, because that's, that's what Jesus says. Like it's going to get, get harder. And, and I mean, if you think about it, you know this, right? A passive life is so much easier. A life floating in and out of whatever cultural fads that, you know, are hip at the moment or, or in this century or whatever it is, like, it's so much easier. Accountable to nobody is easier. But to do that, you have to leave the real Jesus behind. Look at verse 15. And this is where it gets particularly weird, um, just to be warned. Jesus says, so when you see the abomination of desolation, 
spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. I don't, by the way. Um, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter on a Sabbath. For then there will be great suffering, tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. The abomination of desolation. That just sounds creepy, doesn't it? Like a good band name or some heavy metal group, right? What on earth? Like, what's Daniel got to do with all of a sudden Jesus is talking about Daniel? What, what is happening? Like we, we talked about Daniel a few months ago, right? We, we worked through that book t- together. And, and basically what Jesus is alluding to here, you know, Daniel was written uh, in like the mid 500s BC, um, somewhere around there. And, and Daniel makes quite a few interesting predictions, right? Prophecies there. And one in particular was about this thing he called the abomination of desolation, which we would say was, was fulfilled around 175 BC-ish with a Greek ruler who took over Jerusalem, who ruled in an area, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, I'm sure you forgot that from your history class. It's probably okay. Um, but, but he, so took over Jerusalem. He, he goes into the temple then. He builds an altar to the god Zeus in the Jewish temple and begins sacrificing pigs on it. Like, if you know anything about Jewish culture and theology, like, this is, like, not cool, Antiochus Epiphanes, right? Abomination of desolation. And Jesus is saying it's going to happen again. Like, this, this horrible, terrible, awful, awful, shameful thing is on its way again. And it was likely fulfilled, at least in part, in AD 70, when the pagan Romans took apart the temple brick by brick and scattered them across Jerusalem. Abomination of desolation. Well, after that, then, Jesus says, for then there will be great suffering such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And essentially, like, just expect. Like, when that happens, that's your, that's your sign. Expect the worst suffering the world has ever known. Don't be alarmed, Jesus says. Expect it. And don't be deceived, for I will be with you even in it. And man, this is, this is hard for me. It's hard for us culturally, right? Because in my, in my 21st century brain, American, Western, right? Like, suffering is like the absolute worst thing that could ever happen to anyone ever, Right? And any, if anything is a sign that, that God is not a part of it, it's, it's suffering, right? It's pain, it's, it's heartache, we hate it. And, and somehow, somehow we, we, we've grown to believe as a culture that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that God wants me to be happy and that the gospel made a way for me to be happy. But the reality is the gospel, that's, that's not what the message is. The gospel is what gives us hope that no matter what happens in your life, no matter how ugly it gets, no matter how much suffering is brought upon you, that the God who made you will never leave you and that he will get you through to the other side no matter what. It's not a, it's not a promise to, to escape pain, but it is a promise that God will be with us in it. 
I don't, I don't feel very good about that, do you? And, and, and there are ways in which we see this, you know, cropping up around us, don't we? But Jesus says, don't be deceived. So, for example, you know, there, there are whole uh, movements within Christianity today, uh, often referred to as like health and wealth or, or prosperity gospel. Maybe you've heard those terms, maybe you haven't. But essentially, they proclaim that if you just have enough faith, you don't have to suffer. Like, that's all it takes. Like, if you just have enough faith, you can, you can be healed from any disease, any problem, any, anything that has, goes wrong, and, and you can even get rich in the midst, right? Of course, it's typically just the preachers who are getting rich. Um, I'm totally in the wrong gig. Um, but don't be deceived, Jesus says. Suffering is, is part of it. Don't be deceived. Another example, it's been said that, that the real religion in the West isn't Christianity. Not, not the real Jesus anyway. It pretends to be. It blends in oftentimes. It looks like nice church-going folk like ourselves. But it's what some sociologists have actually begun referring to as moral therapeutic deism. We've talked about this before a little bit. Moral therapeutic deism, which is essentially uh, the, the main belief so that God, he just, he's, he's just got your back, right? All he really expects for you is that you're, you're nice to one another. You feel good thoughts about yourself. We try our best to get along. And that you really only need God for the really big problems and basically to give us stuff when we pray. It's the, the Jesus just wants me to be happy religion. Oh man, we get sucked into that one, don't we? Because I want to be happy, right? And my life is pretty, pretty easy for the most part, at least comparatively, it's super easy. So I just assume that if I keep living right and, and praying to God, then, then of course he's going to continue to make my life easy and comfortable. That I can have whatever I want. But the idea that the real Jesus here actually promises suffering. Um, can I get a different Jesus with a second opinion over here? Right? But think about the early church hearing these words. I mean, again, we're so far removed from their context or, or from other places around the world where there is deep pain associated with the gospel that we just, we forget what it must have been like. Think about what it was them. They remember these words when the persecution started for them. I mean, they were fresh off Jesus' lips as he hung on the cross. Or, or read the book of Acts, and you see the, the persecution that the early church went through. Or, or read early, early church history, you, you see it like Jesus' words come true, and they come true fast. Imagine a church hiding or waiting for the Colosseum, reading these words of Jesus for the very first time. Okay. All right, this, this is what Jesus said would happen. He's, he's not surprised, I guess. I guess we can trust him. Oh, but that was, that was way back then, right? No, sadly not. More Christians today face persecution than ever before. In fact, according to a, a CNN article, this is a last, last year or two years ago, so 2015, Christian persecution reached a record high. And then recent studies are, have already showed that, that that high has been met and exceeded again in 2016. There's an article in Relevant Magazine just recently talked about the fact that 90,000 Christians in 2016 were murdered. 90,000. That out of the 195 countries in the world, Christianity is legal and often punishable by death in 26% of them. One out of every four 
people, this is, these aren't just numbers. Like, this is family for us. I mean, imagine if, if you're, you're like your little, literal kids or brothers or sisters or, or parents were experiencing, this is happening all over the world today. And I just have to guess that they read Matthew a little bit differently than we do. Jesus just wants us to be happy. No, Jesus said this would happen. He saw it coming. And that it's only going to get worse. Are you sure we're following the right Jesus? Don't be deceived. <sighs> I think I'd rather be deceived, right? Again, you can see why it's, why it's so tempting, right? Why Jesus continually warns, don't be deceived. Warns against these false Christs, these imposter paths of salvation, being led astray. Of course we want a second opinion. Why would anyone follow the real Jesus? Why would these disciples willingly face their own death in just a few years? Some of them sooner. Why, why would a young man or woman in Iran today give their life to Christ? Or, or in so many places around the world, knowing that to do so is to be disowned by their entire family, all of their friends, disowned at best, murdered at worst, tortured. Why would they do that? I'm just guessing that they know something that we've forgotten. But they, they know something that we've, we've missed in our comfort, in our ease, our lack of pain. But Jesus gets at it here. It's not, it's not all doom and gloom in this passage. We see that why follow the real Jesus? Well, it's because only the real Jesus gets you through to the end. Only the real Jesus gets you through to, to the end. And somehow, somehow that's worth it. So there's two more things that we gotta, we've got to cover here. Like, don't, don't miss this, that the, the real Jesus, he also leads us to a better love. Yeah, there's division and there is suffering, but there is a better love, a love that, that, that's unlike anything the world has ever known or seen before. Obviously, we don't, we don't want to be divided, right? Nobody wants to be hated. And hopefully, hopefully, none of us hear these words as permission to be offensive to non-Christians, right? If that's what you're hearing from this, like, Let's talk, okay? That's, that's not it um, at all. But, but while, while the world shouts tolerance as its highest ideal, just, just don't hurt anybody, Jesus commands love. Self-sacrifice, love at the expense of our own ideals and desires, at our, at our own freedoms and, and, and comforts, right? And while we, we will be divided with those who want nothing to do with Jesus. That's just, that's just going to be part of it. And while that's going to happen, we're also united as brothers and sisters with people we'd otherwise have no business ever being united with. I mean, go back, go back to verse 13, for example. This is just unbelievable what Jesus promises here. And he says, but the, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay, the one, the one who isn't deceived, right, who remains faithful to the real Jesus, that one will be, will be rescued. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Like, think about the audacity of those words. Like, I've heard those before, but I hadn't really stopped to, like, like, what is, like, this prophecy, 
this prediction that Jesus is making. I mean, he's just said, yeah, the temple is, is gone, and we, we can look back and see that, that that was right. Sure, it's gone. It was destroyed in 8070, fine. Um, but this gospel, the good news of, of Jesus, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I mean, imagine Jesus saying that. He's about to be murdered. I mean, it kind of feels like a non-starter at this point. Not to mention the fact that at this point on the planet, there are like maybe 12 Christians. Maybe. Maybe, maybe a few more, I guess. Like on the entire planet. Who Jesus has just said are going to be killed. Imprisoned, tortured, persecuted for following him. That, that everything in the world is going to be in opposition to this movement growing. And then you add to that the fact that this is like a very non-globalized society. There's no, there's no communication outside of these little boundaries. Nobody travels more than a handful of miles from the, the places of their birth ever. And Jesus says, oh yeah, but, but this message, the good news of me, will end up on every part of the globe. And people will follow me from everywhere on the planet and people often say, Jesus, ah, he was just a good teacher. Like, really? Like, have you ever, I've had good teachers. None have made claims as ridiculous as this, right? I mean, anybody who says something like this is either an insane narcissist, right, of the, of the highest proportions. Or maybe, possibly, the son of God. I mean, who says that? And then, and then to add to that, you have to kind of look around, right? Even if you don't believe in Jesus, right? And I, I get that. I'm glad you're here. We, we want to be a place to, to seek and, and search him together. But, but if that describes you, you have to at least take him seriously. The fact that you're here, that, that this exists thousands of years and thousands of miles later, that Jesus' ridiculous prediction, something that he had no business ever saying, is coming true here in us. But that's our story. And it's being fulfilled in every part of the globe today. Everywhere. And you and I, I mean, the implications of this, if, if you are a Christian, this means that you and I, if you're a Christian, have more in common with a Christian who looks nothing like you, who doesn't speak the same language as you, who dresses differently, who lives in a different part of the world or whatever, that you have more in common with that person than with your non-Christian coworkers and neighbors. That, that we have more in common with an Iraqi believer than the unbeliever who lives inside your own home. That there, there is a deeper unity that God is, is doing and creating there. I mean, love is so much better than tolerance. Yes, Jesus divides. But he also brings a, a loving unity that is unlike anything the world has ever seen, a, 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 that we're desperate for. Like, look around, you know, like things just, like the division, the hostility, it's just getting worse. It's not getting better, right? This is what we hunger for. Does that describe us? Does it describe you? This kind of love. And finally, the real Jesus leads us to a better hope. Like there's got to be more to the story, right? I mean, because honestly, as I, as again, as I studied this, it's like, how could Matthew, like with a straight face, write these words and then say, you should follow this guy, right? 
Especially like all that he experienced and would see in the early church. Like how, how could he possibly do that? I mean, honestly, for those who say that the gospels are just religious propaganda, I mean, they're lousy propaganda, right? I mean, Jesus needs a better PR manager, doesn't he? But Matthew, he, he writes these things down for us. Because just a couple days later, he's going to see the one speaking crucified, right? Actually killed, dead on a cross. And then three days later, he's going to see him alive again. And seeing him alive again, I mean, it had to like, like spark the memory back to these words that Jesus says that are ridiculous otherwise. Maybe you think, well, I mean, maybe. Maybe this will come true. What Jesus says in verse 29, for example. Immediately after the suffering of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. That's Jesus. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud call and they will gather his elect, his people, right? From the four winds, like from every direction, from one end of heaven to the other. And he's coming back. He didn't stay dead. Yes, he died on the cross for our sin and for our pain, offering forgiveness and wholeness, but he didn't stay in that tomb. Matthew saw him alive again and hundreds of others saw him alive, which means, like, if that's true, then Jesus might not be crazy with the words that he said, with these, these ridiculous predictions, which means there, there might actually be hope for me. Hope for, for hope for us. And not just, not just hope for a better year or a better decade or a better life. I mean, sure, we, we want those things. And I think there, there's hope in the gospel for those of, of making our lives richer and more meaningful, even in the midst of pain. But hope for eternity. We're so short-sighted, aren't we? We forget that we're still just in the, in the prologue of what God is doing in our lives. That if I'm with him, death will not rule over me. And when he returns, he will make the world right again. He'll make me right again, finally. I'm ready for that. Inside and outside, everything around me in, 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 my, in my world will be made right. That history is actually moving somewhere. Which if you think about it, like, that's the only way life has any meaning. It, it's got to be moving in some direction, some, some purpose, some, something, right? For it to count for anything at all. And I love, I love the metaphor that Jesus uses here. As the other, other biblical writers, they pick up on this. Like he talks about the, like the pain and the, the division, the, the suffering and the tribulation. He calls them birth pangs. Did you see that in verse eight? The start of labor. And while I know better than to pretend I know anything about um, giving birth, ladies, you know everything, I know nothing. Let's just settle that here. Um, and yet I'm told, okay, um, that it gets worse before it gets better, right? Like progressively worse and worse and, and so much, so much worse, right? I mean, until the end. And when it's finally over, the pains and the groans, the pushing and the striving, the, the beauty and the gore, as you see your child for the first time, you hold in your arms the life that you made, was it worth it? I mean, in that, in that moment, 
when you realize that the, the pain wasn't for nothing, that there, there was a direction, a, a something, something worth living for, a, a goal out ahead. Finally, it's like, it's, yes, it's worth it. Of course it's worth it. It wasn't for nothing. And friends, when we get there, no matter what the road looks like for us to get there, no matter how much pain or brokenness or, or how much ease, and, and you know, some of us will have easy lives relatively, while others suffer immensely for their faith. But when we get there, united with believers from every place in the world, every time period, gathered there in the presence of God, will anyone be left wondering, is it really, is it really worth following the real Jesus? Of course not. Don't be deceived. Only the real Jesus can get you through to the end. And the end is good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need your help. God, I need your help because I know how quickly I revert back to comfort and ease and small satisfaction and little tiny bits of happiness. God, I pray that we would see you in the pain and suffering that comes our way, that we wouldn't be surprised by it. Help us not to question you, but to look for you in those moments. God, whatever it is. God, I pray for our brothers and sisters, our family members across the globe, who even to do something like we've done this morning, of publicly gathering to sing music loudly, is just something they can't even hardly imagine because of the persecution around them. God, I pray that we, your people, would be mindful, that we would know that they are family, that we um, would be reminded to pray for them, to care for them. God, I, I pray that you would keep them strong, help them to see you in the midst of their pain. God, I pray that in those moments when they question, and I can only imagine that it has to come, like, why, Jesus? God, I pray that your answer be loud and clear in their hearts and in their lives. Continue to build your church. Continue to, to, to let us as your people uh, to proclaim your gospel in the farthest reaches of the world, fulfilling this ridiculous promise you made so long ago. And Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you that because of you there is hope, even in the midst of pain. Help us to trust you in that.